out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, that is a nice thought. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week, our special guest, because we do love a special guest, to feature is going to be from Radio Birdman, Australia. It is guitarist Dennis Tech, who I spoke to a few months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, Hawaii, coffee plantations, and obviously rock and roll. Sort of pay attention. There's a lot to um, take in, gather, and remember, I might just uh, test you at the end just to ensure that you are paying attention. Anyway, this is the interview, and uh, this is after the first few minutes of chatting and rapping um, the bit where Dennis starts to talk about those early years. Dennis, it's over to you. Well, you're yeah, you're probably too young to see us first time through in the UK. You know, yes. we we moved over there in at the beginning of 1978 and and stayed there for about six months. And uh, we were based out of London, but played all over the UK. Right. And most most of that was uh, on a combined tour with the Flaming Groovies, who were also on our label, Sire Records, and. Uh, and then we, after that, after that tour finished, we didn't make it back to the UK until I think probably 98 or 99, something like that, 20 years later. Wow, that is quite, that is quite the gap. So how did you, just kind of, just to get an idea of, of the, of your musical world and journey, because it's always kind of interesting. What was, what were you listening to when you were growing up in your formative years? Uh, well, gosh, I, I started listening, uh, probably when I was eight or nine years old to the radio and where I grew up in, uh, Michigan, there was, you know, you could hear everything. It was just fantastic. Radio was great back then. Right. So, so I guess the first things I listened to were like, uh, you know, pop music of the day, which was. Um, you know, Elvis and, uh, you know, uh, rock and early rock and roll stuff. Um, you know, Phil Spector music, girl groups, uh, early surf music, you know, um, the ventures, Jan and Dean, uh, beach boys, things like that. And then of course, then we had the British invasion in 1963 yes. and, and that really, that really sealed the deal for me. You know, that's when everybody I knew uh, w wanted to get an electric guitar and learn how to play it and be in a band. So that was, that was the cultural revolution. Right. Cause I know, cause I was always very really obsessed with David Bowie and Lenny from Motorhead. And I always remember they both said the same person who was really influential. And that was little Richard. That was their kind of moment. They always used to say it was seeing little Richard. And then obviously Elvis came along, but that was their kind of moment. And they were both at that age where they just thought, that's it, that's going to be my life. So did you have anybody similar to that? Yeah, for me, probably it was like really a two-pronged thing where um, we had the local music in Ann Arbor. You know, where, when I was a high school student, we had the MC5 and the Stooges and, and you know, and the Rationals and people like that. Bob Seger, SRC, um, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, all, all these were local, as well as Motown, which is right around the corner, all that yeah. stuff. And I know, because Iggy Pop's me, always talked about, Iggy Pop's always talked about that sort of importance of that kind of, the noise in the background of, I think it was Detroit, just hearing it, and that sort of formed the basis of the sound that he, he wanted to get from the, Sto you know, for the Stooges. Did you have any anything quite similar to that in your life? Well, yeah, uh, I, he went, we went to the same school. Right. Uh, you know, we had the same influences. So of course, you know, Iggy, um, or Jim, we call him Jim, but he, he, uh, he was really a drummer first. Yes. And, and he, he went to Chicago and, and, um, and played in blues bands for, 
I don't know, a year or some one or two years and then came back to Ann Arbor and was drummer in a band called the prime movers, uh, which was sort of a, trying to be a progressive, like jazz blues fusion type of thing. Yeah. And, and, um, and of course he was in the iguanas also. That's where he got his nickname. Mm -hmm. and, And, and so he was very influenced by, um, by the Motown stuff and the blues stuff in, that was happening or, uh, down the road in Chicago. Yeah. And then I think when Iggy saw the, the, uh, the doors for the first time, it made a huge impression on him. And I, I think he, he sort of, at that point, he, the music of Iggy and the music of the Stooges changed a little bit from being sort of performance art and a lot of noise to being um, sort of more in the Jim Morrison tradition, you know? Yes, I think noise is it. And sometimes people make noise because of their own sort of, sometimes musical limitations. Because I know from talking to quite a lot of bands from the sort of early 80s who were, there were bands like uh, Big Flame, Bog Shed, Stump. They, they were quite unusual. I mean, some of the players could play, but some of them like Big Flame, I think, their musical limitations di- dictated the sound that they created, which was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. The, the, you know, they the, with the early Stooges, when they were called the Psychedelic Stooges, it was more about uh, creating um, an experience rather than really presenting songs like in a set. It, it was more of, um, we're going to make a spectacle that people haven't seen before. And so, you know, the, the drummer Scotty would, would hit uh, oil drums with steel pipes that had had electronic pickups fitted to them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, and they put microphones in blenders and things like that. And then when they, once they got signed to Electra and they had to come up with songs, it became a different thing altogether. Yeah. yeah. But, but I guess, just to finish your your other question for me the the other seminal influence was the rolling stones because i saw the stones in in 1969 uh and it was the year that brian jones died and they replaced him with mick taylor and it was the year that let it bleed came out and they they it was the first time they had toured in three years in america and by this time i was old enough to actually go to Detroit and go to the show, which was in a, in a hockey arena and, uh, and saw the stones and they were so amazing. It was that for me, that was, that was like ground zero as far as music went. Yes. Well, I think the, the, the work that they did with Mick Taylor is unbelievable. You know, there was kind of a definitely like a Mick Taylor period where basically there were all the best albums, weren't they? In Exile and Main Street is, it's still one of those albums you can explore today and still find new things. And I think it was kind of his work and guitar playing that gave him something special. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which was which was kind of fantastic. So then, how did you... Then you found yourself... Because a lot of people, you know, having interviewed a lot of people, and, and especially the Australian bands, it was like, obviously, they were in Australia, like the Hard-Ons or the Go-Betweens or or the Triffids, and then they come to the UK to do their thing. But your story is really different. I know that you're not an eight, you weren't so much an 80s band, but you you were from America that then found yourself going to Australia, which is quite an unusual route. So did that feel quite discombobulating? Not really. It was, um, you know, I wanted to... I was a teenager when I went there and, and I wanted to be on my own and be far away from my parents. So that was the farthest place on the map that I could find. And, yes. and, and when I got there, it was, um, you know, Australia had great music in the sixties, but by the early seventies, um, things had changed there and it was really a dead period for music in the early seventies. And, I arrived there late 71, I guess it was, and there was really nothing going on, you know, and um, all the great bands had finished. Uh, 
you know, the loved ones, the master's apprentices, the missing links, um, all of those bands were gone. And, and what you had was like this post hippie malaise period of this sort of stoned out electric boogie blues music that was very boring. And, and, um, so, you know, I just looked for people to play music with and, and bringing my, uh, Ann Arbor, Detroit influences to the, to the party, you know, and, and, and looking to do something more real and more different. And it was kind of a blank page to write on at that point. There was nothing, really no, I guess by 1975, you had ACDC doing sort of very minimalist pub rock stuff. Yes. But nothing else really. Yes. But did you start to sort of, because obviously we sort of, because I, I was a slightly different generation who grew up, I suppose, kind of enjoying the world that was glam. And then sort of it was David Bowie in 75 and I saw, you know, listen to Space Oddity and then the B side to Space Oddity, which was Changes and um, Velvet Goldmine. And, and from there it was kind of very influenced. So did you sort of, sort of, because I realised that if you were born in the 60s, the 70s must have felt quite an odd decade for those people. And speaking to a few people who were part of that 60s sound and, and especially the scene in the, in the UK, it was often like they must have felt like especially when Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin all died and then you had Mon, um, the Altamont experience that the party was a bit over and everyone needed to sort of, I don't know, go into rehab really because there was just too much drugs going on for those people who had been part of it. So did it feel, did the, those kind of influences from the 70s start to filter over to you that was the kind of glam period? Yeah. Um, I guess in the early 70s, it, it was, like you were saying, the party's over, there's a huge hangover, people are in rehab, record companies are totally bloated with, you know, billions of dollars and and, and no new creative artistic direction to go in so you had stuff like you know this really uh uh you know stuff like yes and on in the uk and 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 uh sort of country rock was making a an inroad in america and and then you had all these sort of boogie bands that were it's just there there was nothing going on and it was a it was a dead period but then in the middle of that you had David Bowie, and I would also add, you know, Mark Bolin into that. Uh, you know, I think T-Rex was one of the few things that was doing uh, sort of back to rock and roll and and, and uh, more exciting stuff. Yes. So Bowie, T-Rex. And then in America, you had the New York Dolls and uh, Suicide and maybe um probably the early blue oyster cult that later on it became something else but the early blue oyster cult was was it was pretty amazing in like 1972 73 yes i know so when i saw the new york dolls i thought these are these guys are the next rolling stones yes well they were they were huge i know morrissey was a big fan from the smiths yeah but then did you manage to David Bowie was, you know, probably the most creative thing on the planet at that point. Yes. Well, I, I still, you know, because I was a huge Bowie fan, so obviously sort of followed his career from 75, I suppose, 76. And then sort of obviously you go back and you, and then realise that he brought out in the 70s an album a year. Flutty relocated in several places, did tours, and then worked with Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. So you think that man did put a lot into one decade, really. And uh, Yeah. And change musical styles. But then you got your first band together in the kind of early 70s. So did that come together quite well? Yeah, I mean, I had been in bands in high school that didn't really do much of anything. And 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 uh, my first band in Australia was TV Jones, which actually recorded and played some shows. But uh, But I got slung out of that band because the other guys wanted to be more commercial than I wanted to be. And, and, uh, I was, I was hindering their commercial progress. Yeah. And, and so they slung me out. And when, when I got fired from that band, I got together with my, uh, 
my friend Rob Younger and we we started Radio Birdman. That yes. was that was in nineteen seventy four. And that was definitely the period where Yes Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barty James Harvest were happening, as well as the Eagles and and Fleetwood, um, yeah, seventies Fleetwood Mac. Easy listening. So did that feel because punk hadn't really started to sort of kick off in the UK? Oh no, no, that punk didn't really appear until you know as a known entity until seventy six or seventy seven. Well, by seventy seven it was well established, but we didn't really even hear the word punk uh, applied to music in that way until like mid 76. Yes. Which was quite interesting because obviously you'd had, we had a lot of pub rock bands like um, Dr. Feelgood. And then there was like people like Nick Lowe as well. So were you kind of aware of those people on the radar? Yeah, we were. Um, it, we were fans of, of, Dr. Feelgood and you know Wilco Johnson and 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 Nick Lowe and the um, you know the rock pile stuff Dave Edmonds yeah and I had actually when I when I first went to Australia in 1971 I I actually went to London for a short time first on my way there and I met up with the guys in Brinsley Schwartz oh the great Brinsley even went to a house and jammed with those guys, which is amazing. I didn't know uh, at that time who they were or what they were going to be, but but that was my first encounter with Nick Lowe, and I've been a fan ever since, really. Yes. But good stuff. Absolutely. And having spoke to quite a few bands, did it take, I mean, a lot of people take a few years to get a sound together, which is something a little bit more unusual and unconventional, but obviously makes it more iconic. Did Radio Birdman come together quite smoothly or did it take a while yeah it was pretty smooth because um i was already doing that sort of thing with tv jones but i couldn't get the other guys to go along with me where i wanted to go with it and rob our singer um in birdman was also doing a similar sort of thing with his band which was called the rats right and uh you know they were doing a lot of New York Dolls covers and Velvet Underground covers and and pretty edgy stuff and so we were like-minded in what we wanted to do and once we got together it just sort of fell into place pretty pretty smoothly because we had a clear vision of what we wanted to do and we didn't care if anybody else liked it or not or whether we were gonna uh, ever get paid it was just a matter of this is what we want to do yes so then you brought out Burn Burn My Eye. Did that take um did that recording go relatively well? I just wondered if you have much memory of that that kind of particular session. Yeah, we had um we had actually tried there was a guy in Sydney that was the editor of Rock Australia magazine who sort of became his name was Anthony O'Grady and he sort of took us under his wing and said, I'm going to help you guys find a studio to record in because we need to get you guys recorded. And he had resources and helped us. And he took us around to studios and, and it must've been five or six studios. They just, you know, we'd set up and start playing and the engineer would just be, you know, pulling his headphones off and, pointing at the door you know going we can't record that this sort of stuff in here and um and of course we were we were silly in those days you know we said well we know what we want to do and we thought we're going to record loud we're not gonna we're not going to conform to what the studio wants as far as small amplifiers and separation of of tracks we said no this is how we play we set up and we play this way and either record us or not. And we were quite happy to walk out when they said, we can't record that way. Yes. But finally, there was one studio that said, do it your own way and, and we'll see what we can do with it. And that was Trafalgar. And Trafalgar recorded that first EP and, and it was, they were, they were willing to, uh, you know, bend a little bit and be flexible and, 
with these guys who are, you know, kind of stupid punks that don't know how to record, but we're very willful. Yeah. So were you, when you listened to it, because I know, I remember sort of hearing, I think it was the drummer from Joy Division, who'd been working with Martin Hannett, and he said that they were a bit disappointed when they heard the results, because that wasn't quite what they expected, but then obviously they grew to love it, and obviously Joy Division is one of those kind of bands and sounds. Did you, when you listened to your, you know, the recording from that studio session, were you pleased with it? Not really. We thought it sounded kind of tame and quiet compared to what we what we had hoped. Yeah. I don't I don't think I don't think it was recorded particularly well and and certainly not mastered very well because it was uh it was it was kind of a quiet cut and so we were quite happy to move on to the next thing. Yes. But then in retrospect, you... in retrospect it sounds pretty good though. Yes. But then you sort of do one of those major sort of leaps and come to the UK to record the next album in Rock was it Rockland Rockfield Studios in Wales which is one of those kind of iconic kind of studios that have become quite famous so was that did you feel like you were on a massive adventure at that point yeah we did but you know just just to correct the record on that we we had actually recorded another album before that you know we did we did the EP and then we did our first album in Australia Right, and, and then we went to the UK, and it was on the basis of that first album that um, and Seymour Stein coming to see the band uh, that we got light. Our stuff got that first album got licensed to Sire, and Seymour said you have to go to the UK, and that's the next step, and that you can go to the UK, tour with the Flaming Groovies, and 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 record at Rockfield. And so that's how that happened. And the, uh, of course, Rockfield Studios is in Wales, and that's where the they have Studio A and Studio B, and it's in an old farm. Yes. And Studio B is was the smaller of the two, and and the sort of the funkier and more organic one, and and Studio A is the slick big production one and so we went into studio b it had a 16 track machine that dave edmonds actually had installed in there and that was the place where rock rock pile did all their stuff so we were really happy to go there because the place had history and we loved the music that came out of there we loved dave edmonds and nick lowe and so we were quite happy to go and record in there yeah and also one thing because because i because I know you you produced that album, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And, and sort of, because I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and when they were doing their third album, bizarrely the management were a bit tight on money, even though they'd had two successful albums on the tour. And, um, and he said things weren't good because he was doing it, and just he didn't really want to do it, but they wanted to try and save money. How did you get on being the producer and also being in the band? Oh, it was the same sort of thing. You know, our producer for our first album was Charles Fisher, and and he was back in Australia, and we would have had to fly him over at our own expense, and uh, and so there was the money and logistic issue of having him come to do it, and uh, but the other thing was we thought, well, we know enough, we can you know we can sort of do this ourselves, yeah. The, the band sort of, we, we were very democratic. We voted on everything. And the, the band voted me to be the, the producer. I had actually produced a couple of singles for other bands in Australia before and, and knew a little bit about how to do it. And, uh, and we had a very good engineer um, that was going to be helpful in that regard also. So they... The band made the decision. I said, "Okay, I'll have a go at it, and we'll see how how it turns out." And um, yes, and did yeah. you feel when you were recording it, because the band split up quite soon after that, didn't they? Yeah. Well, the band was already fragmenting at that point. We we had, you know, we had mental mental illness. We had drugs. We had. Um, 
personality clashes. And we had hardship because the label was dropping us and withdrawing support. So we didn't have any money. No. And, you know, the um, Sire Records uh, had, they had about 20 or 25 bands on their label that they dropped at the same time because they ran into financial trouble and lost their distribution deal in the UK and in Europe, which was with Phonogram. And they only kept their four bands when that happened. They they sort of bankrupted and they kept the Ramones, the Talking Heads, and then two bands, two European bands that were paying all the bills for all these punk and new wave bands, which were Renaissance and Focus. Those, <laughs> bands, those bands were successful and they're paying every for everything else. Excellent. So we got dropped. The Dead Boys got dropped. The Rosillos got dropped. All these great bands. I'm not saying we were a great band, but all these bands we thought were great got dumped at the same time. And that contributed to us breaking up because, you know, when things are going great, you can overlook personality conflicts and, 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 uh, and you can give people a pass. But when things are really difficult, minor things become magnified yes and so we just split up at the end of that tour so did you i mean when you listen to it now is it quite painful because it took because you lost the master tape and then they got re-found again decades later i did that sort of feel how did that feel well the master tapes didn't get lost but they were withheld because we were dropped from our label and so rockfield wasn't going to release those master tapes until they got until the sessions were paid for and the sessions were never going to be paid for because Sire said, well, we're, we don't have that. They're not on our label anymore. They shouldn't have even gone there and recorded. And uh, so Sire wasn't going to pay their bill. Rockfield wasn't going to release the master, but I had a safety copy and it, it stayed in my closet for three years. Yes. And then in 1981, we mastered from that and released it. Yeah. It was it was probably breach of copyright and a contract violation and we could have been sued for doing that, but we did it anyway and and uh released that record. Yeah. And what and, and when you think about it now, what how do you reflect on that particular album compared to the second one? It's very different, but um but I think it has a lot of merit and it was critically well received. Um, I'm quite happy with it. There, there are some things about the production that I would do differently now if I if I could do it over again. But that's always going to be the case. Yes, amazing. That is but, quite a story. And mostly, you know, the one thing I find with doing this show is that most people have a five year narrative, especially the kind of eighties indie scene of getting together. You know, they're to, you know after about twelve months, they might you know make a sound that John Peel, this DJ that we love you know, played, then they get a John Peel session, and then after that, the album came out, and that was often a good point. Their second album is when things get a bit tricky, and if anybody ever tours America, that kind of seems to break them in two. So, and then and then they just decide not to play music for 30 years, and then sort of come back and think, right, I might have a go again, because I quite <laughs> enjoyed it, and I've buried some of the memory. But some people stick with it, and you're one of those few people who kind of then sticks with the music world, don't you? Even I do stick. I do stick with it, and I'm still very. I I just finished a tour, uh, what five days ago or six days ago. We returned home from tour, and and I'm busy um, getting ready to record another album with James Williamson in the next. Uh, well, actually, what is it? Three three weeks from now, we're going to record in San Francisco. So. I've got this new album coming up and um, I just released a solo album two months ago. Yes, I could see. So I'm staying busy. Yeah, no question about that. So was there, so on an emotion level, there was never a point where you thought, I've really had it. I've been, I've had problems with the management. I've fallen out with all the people I ever knew and liked and we made no money. So you never sort of have had any of those kind of existential kind of moments. All those things that you just mentioned happened and they were all true, but 
it didn't stop me from playing music because I love to play music. Yes. But interestingly enough, you you got a really amazing career as a licensed uh, physician, which is quite interesting. How did you manage to balance the two things? Uh, that's a good question. Um, not a lot of free time <laughs> and um, and very good at compartmentalizing things. But um, but yeah, I you know, I've always stayed busy and and. I've never, um, I've never been bored for one second in my life. There's always been something to do. And yeah. I didn't spend a lot of time sitting on the couch shooting heroin and watching t TV, you know? So what made you kind of go into medicine? Because that's quite, I've never, out of all the, you know, I've, I've met, there's a few people who were in indie bands who became academics but, you know, in a, in a, you know, which is kind of a bit surprising. And Amelia Fletcher became a sort of got put, yeah, I think she became a, I don't know, she got knighted for her work in economics, which was quite impressive. But uh, being in medicine is, is quite specialised. And like, you know, you said, being able to compartmentalise kind of things is quite hard. Well, it's one thing about the, the specialty that I went into was emergency medicine. So I only worked in emergency rooms. And when you work in emergency, uh, it's casual work. I mean, you, you can schedule your whole year ahead and you can be, you can be absent from the hospital for months, weeks and months at a time if you need to record or if you need to tour or whatever. So I, that was one of the things that my specialty was one which didn't tie me down. I could, I could have two careers with that specialty. Yes. You know, it's, it's all shift work. Um, you don't have a practice or an office that you're, that you're stuck with. So that's part of it was that. And, and medicine, you know, it's whenever, um, whenever you can have a career that is interesting and helps people and also supports your, can support your own family and support your, you know, your uh, other interests like music in my case, that's a great thing. And I always tell people, you know, sometimes in interviews I get asked, do you have any advice for young musicians just starting out? And my, I, what I say, tell them is, yeah, get a job get a job so that you can have an income and support yourself. And then you can do the music you want to do, not the music that conforms to someone else's idea of a marketing plan. Yes. But the interesting thing in the UK, the UK during the early eighties, there was a lot of unemployment. So a lot of the bands that I grew to love had, had just kind of got to that point where they left school, there was nothing on. So they claimed, unemployment and sometimes the job seekers alliance or enterprise alliance and that gave them that kind of almost like a grant and because there wasn't many opportunities or it didn't seem like at the time a lot did form bands and have that kind of few years of sort of probably getting a bit stone drunk playing music and then having that kind of almost a five-year kind of career in that kind of world and, and creating something until they felt that they were either going to die or they had to just put the guitar away so I think that was kind of a story that a lot of indie bands from the UK had. I don't know what it was like in Australia. Well, I think Australia never had that. Um, they've been a very lucky country because they have so many natural resources. And they they never had that really depressed period that you're talking about that was that happened in the UK. You know, it which I think it extended from the post second war period all the way up through the 70s yes. and maybe into the 80s too where things were just very difficult there uh australia never had that yes but you that's, you... Why, they, that's why they that's why they call themselves the lucky country okay but then you also had slightly kind of difficult i don't know prime ministers didn't you i mean like we had thatcher there was reagan and you had quite an extreme right as well so that added to the angst that that was coming coming out of the UK during that time. Yeah, the the angst factor in Australia never got to be that great because people were well off. 
right that 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 doesn't create angst like the sex pistols does it but right. one thing i've noticed is that 30 years seem to be a pass in a time where things get sort of like i don't know reflected on and and sort of looked back on and obviously you know one thing that i noticed that a lot of bands like it was the wedding present the slits l7 and then to go between some chills have all had films made and also you you were part of a subject of a, a, a film as well so was that a surprise when that came came about? It was a surprise that the guy actually finished the film. Uh, we'd, we'd had multiple approaches before where filmmakers had said, I want to do a, a film documentary about your band. And we'd said, okay, fine, show us the, the business plan and show us the storyboard. And, 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 and they've never followed through. But then this time, this guy did. He actually he sold his house to get the, get up the money to, you know, to start the production. And, and he was also a guy who was a well-respected and highly experienced film editor for the ABC. So he had the means to do it and he actually followed through and did it. Yes. Which was, that, that was the surprise to us that some guy actually, actually uh, did what they said they were going to do. And that must have felt quite humbling when you realized the commitment that he thought on a band that was from the sort of late 70s. Yeah, yeah, it, it was humbling. And, and we're, it, was, it was very, very good for the band. You know, it, it actually, um, when, the, when the film came out year before last, we were actually able to tour the world on the basis of that film. Yes. And did that, and did that feel like, because you mentioned there have been sort of issues and mental health, health problems and stuff like that, did it sort of help sort of heal a few of the kind of issues and problems that had happened during that period? Not at all. It, the, the people that were really problematic in that period, uh, for one reason or another, are gone. I mean, they, we've changed the lineup. Um, we, we still have three original members. And, and one guy that we, our bass player has been there for 20 years. So he's still kind of a new guy, but close to being an original member. And then we're six piece. So the other two are, are relatively new. We've, we've had them for uh, six years now. So right. the, um, the, the areas of conflict are gone. The uh, because the people that were on that in that conflict are gone. Yeah, they're not they're not in the band anymore. Those guys. I did because I, I I sort of spoke to Martin from the Chills and he was quite amazed when he heard other members of the band talking about their experiences because he had never heard of them. Did did anything come out of the film that sort of made you? reflect as well when you heard people's other you know stories absolutely it was i was quite shocked to hear what some of the uh the other guys said in their interviews in the movie because i i had not heard any of this stuff before and and my first thought is that if they had communicated at the time we could have solved the problem <laughs> you know, but yeah, you, you have to be able to talk about stuff, you know. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I love my, you know, rock documentaries and films that they have on BBC Four on a Friday night in the UK. And I know that when they were talking to the drummer of, of the police, Hewitt Copeland, and he was saying that they, you know, the police got offered this huge kind of amount of money to reform. And so I suppose they thought, well, we should do it. He said that everybody was having a good time apart from him and Sting. And eventually they had to sort of have band therapy and talk about everything. And, and I just, and he sort of realised that, you know, perhaps, you know, they should have had band therapy a long time ago. And the thing that Sting said to him was that all the comments that Stuart made, that he didn't say anything or react said everyone really hit him you know and like Stuart was like oh shit I didn't know that actually all those things that I've been winding you up were pissing you off so much so I didn't you know so band therapy it could be the way forward yeah maybe I mean it's have you seen that Metallica movie yes where he's going off to rehab a lot 
and they and they the band actually hires a psychologist to come into the recording sessions that was hilarious um yeah and and the guy tries to you know tries to suggest changes to the lyrics and get involved in the production and stuff like they're paying this guy ten thousand dollars a week to uh to have these group group sessions and it was just i thought that you know i didn't I didn't see that movie for years when it came out because I don't like Metallica, but um, somebody finally said, you've just got to see it. And really it was one of the most amazing films. Yeah. Just, and uh, so when you mentioned, you know, group therapy, that's what, that's what I think of. Well, I think, yes, there was, I think if you just kind of sat down the people and didn't make a film and just say, can we just both for half an hour, talk about how we really feel sometimes. Yeah. Things just leave, and then you can say, "Okay, I understand. I won't say. I won't try and wind you up because I realise it really does piss you off." Rather than, but that, yes, I, I I'm exactly like you. I, I can't stand. I don't get Metallica at all, so I didn't ever watch it. And then one night it was on Netflix, and thought, "Well, I'll start watching it." And it was like I'd forgot about that therapist, and the rest of the band were like, "We're going to have to try and get rid of him because he's because <laughs> he's become a member of this band. He's now thinks he's a member of the band, which was amazing." It, it, for a, exactly. for a psychologist, for a psychologist, not to have the understanding that he was really becoming so needy within a band was just boggling. I thought his awareness was so little, you know. And yes. and and to be honest, I remember Lemmy saying, you know, like you just can't have people's girlfriends on a on a tour because it becomes like Spinal Tap. They start right. jumping in with ideas that. And you start, you know, having to wear, you know, knitwear that the, the girlfriend wants to sort of produce for the band on the merchandising store. So yes, it was it was a classic one, really. But yeah, so the thing, the thing that the thing that was so great about Spinal Tap is that it was so real. I mean, the the things that were in that movie are actually things that happen to bands all the time, and and when you see it, you just think, how in the world is it possible that they could have made such a realistic movie? Everything else coming out of Hollywood is is not realistic, and um, and then I met the guy, the drummer from Spinal Tap, and actually he he actually played drums on three of my solo albums. Uh, a guy named Rick Parnell, who's a British guy, and um, a very interesting person also, but uh, a, a great he's a great drummer. He he had been in Atomic Rooster and The Deviants and He's a really great drummer, but but he told me that when the band, you know, that when they made the movie of Spinal Tap, the uh, the actors that played the band members were all real musicians with real experiences in this area, and they just changed the script to to make it reflect reality, and <laughs> that's why that movie is so great. Yes, it is a classic. And we also there was one in the. 80s, which was the comic strip by the young ones, the people who did the young ones, which was quite good as well. But, but then, yeah. So just with your solo career, because obviously that is incredibly prolific. I mean, it's one thing I've noticed with people is trying to keep a hold of their music through kind of the publishing and and sort of ownership. Did you manage to sort of navigate those tricky waters? Okay. Yeah. After a time, we did. You know, when we did our first recordings, we weren't smart enough to know how to read a contract or or protect our interests so the early stuff is sort of gone but um but now yeah it's all it's all well controlled i my publishing is done by universal um i have a good contract with them and and they look after me on on publishing and and uh as far as the recordings and the performances we own we own all of them Yes. And obviously, the one thing that a lot of bands have had to do is kind of this crowdfunding. Have you had to do go that route yourself occasionally, or have you managed to sort of find other means to finance it? No, we've, we've never done that. And that must be a huge relief. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you go that route, it obligates you in a certain way. I mean, you have to... There's always a payback of some sort. And... I personally, I wouldn't want to ever be in that situation. Um, I wouldn't be comfortable with it, but uh, I certainly understand how some people have to do it. Yes. 
And have you, I mean, sort of looking back at, at the sort of the last couple of decades with your solo work, has there been periods where you sort of look back with particular fondness and think, God, that was a really good time or that was a little bit more of a tricky time? Because obviously things come ebb and flow. Yeah, well, with any with anything, you know, with, with bands, there's ebb and flow and there's times that become, as you say, tricky. But But, you know, for the most part, I can look back on every every uh, lineup that I've played with, and 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 every, every um, episode in in that career, that, and and find really good things to reflect on. Yes, yeah. it's, it's been mostly positive. And when you play go out live, is it difficult to know what to put in the set list because? Of... Yeah. Yes, that's the biggest problem is knowing what to leave out because mm. we have so much material that we like to play and you know and the drummer wants to do this song and the, the other guitar player wants to do these other songs and you can't put everything in i mean typically when when radio birdman goes out like on this last tour we do 16 songs in the main set and then we'll come back and do four more songs and so that's 20 for the night so that's only about half of our recorded material and yeah. uh, and it's it's always a problem knowing what to leave out and know and trying to get a set list out that everyone's happy with i could imagine there's some disappointed fans and talking of fans are you still picking up new members of the audience you know new people coming along who are thinking god i've just heard about these guys i've just seen the film rather than because i know some bands go it's sometimes a bit strange because the audience is all 50-year-old men with the tall T-shirt, but it's nice when you see younger people coming out to discover to discover the artist or band. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, if, if, we, uh, if we go much longer, our, our original fans are all going to be in nursing homes and we'll have to get, get a bus to go pick them up and bring them back to the nursing home after the show. Which is not but, good. But, so it's really good to have new people. And... And, you know, we're getting quite a few 18 to, you know, 25-year-olds. The front row is full of them. And and uh, I don't have numbers on this, but it just looks, the, the crowd looks younger than it has for decades. And the other thing is we're getting young women coming along, whereas 10 or 15 years ago, it was all blokes. Hey, you still got that Iggy look, Iggy Pop look, haven't you? I don't know. I don't know what's causing it, but um, we're very, very happy with that development. Yes. And how? Just lastly, how do you manage to keep it all together while you're based in Hawaii? Yeah, uh, I was living in Australia up until about three years ago, and and everything was simple then, but. Uh, because of family reasons, my, my mother has a farm here and she needed a lot of help both personally and, and with the property. And so my wife and I uh, moved out here to help her. And so that does present some log, you know, logistic problems. We have to f- fly 10 hours to get to Sydney from yeah. here, but, but we're, you know, we're making that work. Yes. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. I think it was, um, Heaven, Heather Nova. I did an interview with her and she was in Bermuda. And I thought, God, oh, there are people scattered on these exotic sand and islands making music, which is quite amazing. Because yeah. I guess... And the other thing is that I, uh, one of my neighbors here in Hawaii is James Williamson and from the Stooges. And so he and I have, have gotten together and the, the one we're working on now is the second project that we've that we've done together and so that's been a benefit of of living here and good neighbors god that must be so did you did you already you must have known that he was a neighbor because of your mother i didn't i didn't i didn't find that out until i did this uh uh, memorial show with the stooges in in ann arbor um it was two years after ronnie died uh we had they had a memorial concert at the Michigan theater for Ron Ashton. And, and, um, I was invited to play at that show and that's where I met Williamson for the first time. And 
talking to him, found out that he lived out here. And that must have been mind blowing. And over the decades, I mean, that's the one thing, you know, has your musical, has your style changed musically? I just wondered if you sort of have developed different sort of ideas or techniques or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I've, not the last album, but the one before that um, was all all surf instrumentals, just because I always wanted to try it. And you did it, Dwayne Eddy. Yeah, it's got to be done. Yes, right. Thank you ever so much. Sorry, but anyway, it does look very beautiful there, and it's very nighttime here. Yeah, yeah. I'll show you what it looks like. I'll turn the phone around here. Yeah, so there's a, so you can see sort of the property there and ocean in the background there. Oh my God. Pacific Ocean there and, and, uh, and we, we grow coffee and macadamia nuts here on this farm. That's extraordinary. So yeah, it's pretty nice. Coffee. My God. Anyway, look, can you buy it? in other countries you can but um we 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 ship the coffee mail order mostly within the u.s because uh postage is so expensive if you ship overseas yeah we do we do have a few uh international customers that buy the coffee and they're they they like it enough that they're willing to pay the uh exorbitant shipping costs gotta be done what's it called i'll have to google it Tecona, T-E-K-O-N-A, Tecona Coffee. Excellent. Well, look, this is fantastic. Look, when I do this uh, interview uh, feature and put it out, um, I'll send you a link, and then you can put it on your website or Facebook. We'll do that. Okay, then. Well, look, have a great day, and thank you ever so much for your time. Thanks, David. Have a good day, too. Yeah, or good night. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. Yeah.